0: I have a, a very simple rule. I like to call this the three-by-one rule or the four-by-one rule. In the self-improvement space, one thing that happens a lot is that we over-evaluate the practical side of things and we underestimate the imagination side of things. This three-by-one rule, as I like to say it, is for every uh, three non non-fiction books that you read, aim to insert just one fiction book. Think of it like this. You don't go to the gym and just work out one half of your body. Do you? If you do, then you're some sort of weirdo. For the most part, what happens is that people have a very holistic interpretation of how to work out their body in the gym. Why not apply that same philosophy with your mind? See, with nonfiction books, it's great because you are getting practical insights in regards to a certain field. You're getting a lot of logic, a lot of frameworks, and much more. But you know what you're not always getting? Creativity, imagination that fiction books can tackle. The unique thing with fiction books is that it's not something that is going to make you live in fantasy land, because I can already predict what a lot of adults are thinking. They're thinking, Fam, we're entering the real world right now. Why bother reading novels? Why bother escaping reality to insert ourselves in another reality? Because the thing is, with fiction books, we're capable of getting our current experiences and we're able to deliver it in a way that is more engaging towards others. Studies have shown time and time again that raw PowerPoints, facts, charts, it doesn't do that much good, especially when you're trying to get someone inspired. How often have you seen that before, where you're in one of these uh, town halls uh, and the leadership team, they've done all of this work. And by the way, they have put in a lot of work uh, trying to get a lot of these uh, presentations up and running. But are the people in the audience, are they listening? No. No they're not listening. They're yawning away. They're yawning away because human beings do not process information through raw logic alone. You need to package the information correctly with the use of a story. And that's what fiction books can help you do. For a long time, when I used to go to the gym, I used to weigh a lot of importance towards lifting. I loved lifting weights. This is how guys give each other props. They'll look at you and they'll be like, how much can you lift? That's what their facial gesture indicates. Like, And if you could lift a decent amount, then you win respect among the men. But the thing is, it's not always aesthetically pleasing to just lift a lot and that's it. So later on in my life, there was a certain period when I discovered a program called P90X. P90X is a 90-day workout program that allows you to get a holistic experience of the body. Sure, you're lifting weights, but you're also doing a lot of agility work. You're also doing a lot of um, dynamic work. And you're also doing a thing called yoga. When I was doing P90X, I was thinking, yoga? Come on, man. I mean, for all the other days in the uh, workout week, I'm over here doing all of this intense work and you're going to insert yoga in there? Yoga is definitely going to be the easiest workout of them all in the P90X uh, curriculum. Boy, was I wrong. Because when I tried to do yoga that first day, I kid you not, I almost threw up. It was that bad. Because with yoga you're over here working out muscles that you never knew existed. I like to call it the micro-muscles. And just like anything out there, in the beginning stages, it was very difficult to work out these micro-muscles. You're over here standing on one leg, trying to use the opposite arm to touch that leg while you're getting the other arm, trying to touch something else that doesn't seem like it should be touched. I'm thinking, how am I going to figure this out? It took days, weeks, months, until eventually the micro muscles got as strong as the macro muscles. You know, the macro muscles that you can see, the micro muscles were building in power. And the more that it started to build in power, the more that I started to feel whole. Nowadays, the posture started to fix up. Nowadays, what happened was I felt good. Because when you're just over here working out uh, your muscles. You're just just lifting a lot and that's it. The problem with that is that you never get the system aspect of the body. It just seems like the body are a bunch of uh, disparate parts. But once you do yoga, what happens is that it connects these disparate parts into a unified whole. Before yoga, I could not spot a connection between my right bicep and my left leg. No connection at all. But when I'm doing yoga and I'm trying to do a lot of these unique uh, flexibility exercises, I can easily spot a connection between my right arm and my left leg. This is cool. Not only is yoga great for feeling good, it's also great for speech anxiety. This is an, un- an underrated fix and allow me to explain. When you are feeling a lot of nerves before a speech, you will notice it. I mean, some of the common attributes include your eyes feeling watery, your body feeling lethargic, your mouth feeling very cottony and such, all normal. But what happens to the sad folks is that they try to kill off these feelings they began to smoke a lot of weed, they began to drink a lot of alcohol, Uh, began to watch a lot of porn, turn on the TV, and just watch show after show after show to distract them from what? A physical feeling. But those people who do yoga understand how to coexist with that feeling. And once they know how to coexist with the feeling, they see that the solution is pretty simple. Uh, Emotions come and go. The feelings also come and go. So rather than trying to kill it with some sort of narcotics, uh, learn to use it. Better yet, learn to breathe through it. So whatever yoga is for the body, I like to say that fiction books are for the mind. The more that you're capable of sprinkle, sprinkling in a fiction book every now and then, and mind you, I'm not even saying uh, ditch nonfiction books. I'm just saying, sprinkle in a fiction book every now and then. And if you have no clue where to look, look at your uh, high school curriculum. They gave you a lot of books back then that were novels that you could read as an adult and it can uh, be fun. I mean, there's Things Fall Apart, uh, there's uh, I Know Why the Caged Bird uh, Sings, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, and much more. And as you read it, what's going to happen is that As you are presenting in the future, you are organically going to tell stories. It's just going to happen. The thing is, you could always tell stories, by the way. If you're someone that has ever engaged in uh, gossiping or whining, then you, my friend, are a born storyteller. The only issue is that when you're about to uh, tell a story uh, because you are being called upon to tell a story, let's say in front of a work meeting, That's when you start to get a little scared. You're like, oh man, I don't know how to do this. It's like, imagine if someone comes up to you and says, hey, all you need to do is breathe regularly and I will give you $600 billion. You're going to be like, okay, uh, all I have to do is breathe regularly. (laughs) That's even a difficult word to pronounce, regularly. And now you're trying to breathe in this normal sort of way, and that's when you're starting to second guess yourself. You're like, man, what does normal breathing even seem like? I mean, (laughs) you know, uh, the $600 billion has you rattled. So there's this ordinary activity that you do all the time. But now, uh, due to the stakes being raised, you forget how to do this ordinary activity. It's just like that with storytelling. We're routinely telling stories to our good friends, to our close confidants, to our relatives and such. But whenever we are trying to tell a story for an event, whether it be for work, a business presentation, whether we're teaching, that's when it becomes difficult. To ease yourself into storytelling, though, I have a unique tip. Tell analogies, share those. There was this one year when I was working in this aerospace company, and this was my first ever internship. And as soon as the different folks in my College of Engineering class learned that I was working in an aerospace company, their eyes lit up. Different people got internships in different industries, but when you hear the phrase aerospace in the College of Engineering, there's automatically more clout, okay? So different kids were saying, yo, we're really excited to hear what you are going to do in this aerospace industry once you come back. And mind you, this is a very significant moment for myself and these other students' lives because after this internship, more specifically after this year, us college students were about to enter the real world. It's very important for us to understand which industry that we are going to be a part of. So my internship begins. And I'm over here getting different experience from uh, all different folks within the aerospace company. I'm working with systems engineers, control engineers, software engineers, business analysts, different stakeholders, and much more. And by the way, this is a little bonus tip. If you are trying to get a lot of great experience, especially as an engineer, rather than working for big companies, work for small companies. And you know it's a small company when most of the uh, workers know each other. So I was getting all of this different experience because it was a small company. That summer, I ended up learning a lot. You could say I almost became a subject matter expert in this particular uh, product that I was working on. And by the time that summer had ended and I returned back to College of Engineering, the different classmates were like, well, go on, uh, tell us what you did. And a bunch of them gathered around me. And that's when I began to explain exactly what I did. I started to talk about the highly niched details. I talked about aeronauts, altitude, latitude, a bunch of hairy phrases. And I'm thinking that I'm doing something good. I'm like, guys, do you see how smart I am? Do you see how much I learned in the summer? I'm inspiring you guys, right? But when I looked at the different people in the audience, they had this look like, it's like they were trying to keep themselves awake. And I'm thinking that there must be some sort of misunderstanding. Guys, I mean, are you guys not hearing me? Should I repeat myself? Should I go more in detail? But the glazed faces were now turning into just full-blown yawns at this point. And one by one, different individuals began to excuse themselves. Later on that day, I felt somewhat upset. I mean, here I was getting this amazing experience in this aerospace company, but no one seemed to care. And that's when one of my, I like to call him the tell it like it is friends, he told me something. He's like, Armani, it's not that they didn't care. It's just that they didn't understand what the hell you were saying. I mean, you're using all these big phrases where I was like, what, what is this guy saying? It's almost as though you were speaking a different language. And when my tell it like it is friend told me something like that, I just had a realization. I was like, huh, they didn't understand what I said. Okay, I'm going to fix this. So the next day, I gathered the same group of students once again. And this time, I was going to make sure that they understood. So once they gathered around me, I began off my explanation with questions. I was like, all of you guys drive, right? they all nod their head. I was like, now imagine that you guys are driving and there's no side mirrors. How's that going to feel? And that's when I saw a bunch of the guys looking like this, looking like that, as st- simulating that they had no side mirrors, which meant that most of the times when they were going to have to turn a left or right, they actually had to physically turn their neck, right? And that's when one of the guys was like, man, that's going to be difficult. It may even hurt my neck because, you know, every now and then there's a slow driver in front of me and I try to turn left and turn right to cut them off. I'm like, exactly. So if you don't have the side view mirrors, that's going to be a problem. And that's when I said, what about the rear view mirror? Imagine that's not there either. What's that going to be like? And now a bunch of these guys were turning their necks all the way around and they're like, oh man, bro, this is annoying. And one of the guys, he's like, man, the rear view mirror is the mirror that I used to see when someone is tailgating me. If that mirror didn't exist, I would have to And he turns around with a crisp middle finger. And he's like, I'd have to flick off the guy like this. And he's turning and facing back while sticking up his middle finger. And just like that, the bunch of the people in the audience start laughing. I started laughing too because these people are now engaged. And that's when I see that these people are already somewhat uncomfortable with me removing the mirrors from their cars. And now I was like, What about you guys didn't have the speedometer? And what if you guys didn't have the gas tank meter? How is that going to feel? And this is when I could see their faces and it looked like it was going to explode. Because that's when one of them blurts out, bro, if there's no speedometer, it's going to always feel like I'm driving in uncertainty. I don't know if I'm driving too fast or if I'm driving too slow. Someone is like, forget that, bro. What about the gas tank meter? How am I ever going to know when I'm on the last couple of uh, pounds of gas? How am I going to know that? They're over here freaking out. And I'm allowing them to freak out. This means that they are very engaged in what is happening. And once they are in the peak freaking out, that's when I say, you guys see that uncertainty that you guys are feeling when the mirrors have been removed, uh, the rear view mirror, side mirror, uh, the speedometer, the gas tank meter? They're like, yeah. I was like, that's the same level of uncertainty that a lot of pilots feel when they, they when they are uh, flying something. So the company that I worked for, we created tools to remove that uncertainty. We created their versions of rear view mirrors, side mirrors, speedometers, and gas tank meters. And just like that, the faces that were very uncertain and cringeworthy before suddenly started to be like, I just saw a bunch of different faces lighting up with understanding. I gave them an analogy. And now they could actually understand what I did. And from there, if I wanted to give technical details, the technical details have a context that the details plug into. If more teachers started off with anecdotes rather than raw explanations from the very beginning stages, then we would have a much smarter world. Let's just put it like that. Okay. And now you may be curious, well, Armani, how do I create analogies? The number one thing is that, um, There's two things, but the first thing is that you need to know a lot about a field. If you were to ask me to give an analogy of something I know very well and tie it into dolphins, I don't think I could do that because I don't know that much about dolphins. But for me, I was able to create that analogy uh, with my internship because I built a lot of knowledge within the field of my internship, plus I drive all the time. So I had a boatload of knowledge. And to help you with this, just learn anything that you can. You never know when it will come in useful and when it can serve as uh, material to create an analogy out of in the future. So that's the first part. You gotta know a lot. Number two is when you activate the analogy irony. This is when you view yourself as a genius and you view the recipients as a dumbass, okay? You're the genius They're a dumbass. And this may sound very mean in the beginning stages, but it's not. It's actually going to help you out tremendously. The reason that you want to view yourself as a genius is because this is going to help you zone in on topics that you know very well, okay? But the reason that you don't want to view the other individuals as geniuses as well is because you're going to get a topic that you know very well, and you're going to explain it in this convoluted way, Let's say you know a lot about podcasting and you view yourself as a genius of podcasting and you make the mistake of viewing the other people as a genius too. They ask you, yo, what exactly is a podcast? And you're like, well, it's a bunch of audio, uh, raw audio that is turned into a MP3 file that is then encoded into a blah, blah, blah that is uploaded into an audio RSS feed that is... the." You're being way too hairy with your explanation. But you, you assume instead that these guys are all dumbasses. And they ask you, yo, what exactly is a podcast? You'll give a crisp explanation such as a radio show for the internet. Boom. That is beautiful. So try this out for yourself. If you are very curious about how to create analogies, Find a couple of topics that you know very well. It could be what you do for your work. It could be a sport that you love. It could be uh, a place that you traveled and you really traveled that place in depth to a point where you know it very well. And now you need to explain it to someone. I want you to honestly picture this guy as a straight up buffoon. Straight up. You know, they can't even spell their name correctly. And the more that you view them as a dummy, And the more that you you begin explaining, organically, a lot of analogies are going to fall out. You're not going to even have to try. And this will lead to a spark of understanding in the other person's subconscious mind. This is how teaching is meant to happen. And I believe more folks in the future are going to teach like this. We want our teaching to be very educational and entertaining in the process. And the more that it's a little bit of both, the more that we have incentive to learn. You see, there's no point in knowing a lot if other folks cannot understand what we are saying. And this may seem a little defeatist as well. It's like, fam, like you're honestly just getting smarter for other people? Not quite. When you can simply explain hairy concepts to yourself, you number one, what happens is that you are much more likely to apply that information. Okay, with Toastmasters, when I joined it, initially I started off as a member, but after giving a whole bunch of different speeches, I started to get different mentors. And once you get different mentors, what happens, excuse me, I got more mentees. Okay, once you started to get different mentees, what would happen was that they would ask you questions from different angles that you never considered. And if you are being too complex with your words, they wouldn't get it. And then it would make you look bad because you're their mentor. So you need to be able to explain it in a simple way. Uh, some people would ask you questions that you never even considered. Hey, um, is the fashion really that important? It's like, you never really explained this out loud. You would just dress up for your speech. Maybe you just got out of work and you were automatically dressed up. You never put much conscious thought into it. That's when you're like, hmm, is the fashion that important for my speech? You think about it, and you're like, yeah, I would say so. Because you know that one member? uh, This person's a member now, and you see how they always dress up when they have a speech? Fam, the first ever speech that I saw from this person, this guy looked awful. He was wearing basketball shorts. He smelled. He had a stain on his shirt. And we actually had no clue that he was presenting that day. We were shocked when we saw him getting up on stage looking like that, and even though his talk was pretty good, the problem was that he looked so bad that we couldn't get over it, okay? So his speech was not heard, and this was a very important speech. If he did well, then he could have progressed further in the speech competition. This is one of those situations where his poor fashion flooded his great message. So the mentee asks, is the fashion important? And you can say with concrete evidence, yes, it is important. And you cite a case of that one gentleman. And now you're thinking, "Whoa, fashion is important. And now you begin to take your fashion more seriously for the event. See, fashion is very underrated. And it's one thing that a lot of guys will completely marginalize. They'll say, Dude, fashion, uh, that's for girls. And they'll just leave it at that. And then they will go a- and dress like a pure slob. I actually know this one guy who's uh, really funny. Um, he's always outraged about something. And he's the most outraged when it directly affects him. One day he came to me. He's like, Armani, you won't believe it. I was like, what? He's like, the amount of women that are currently hideous it repulses me. Like, what the hell is a heightist? And he's like, a heightist is someone that discriminates you based on your height. And this friend of mine is five foot six. And whenever someone finds out in these dating apps that he's five foot six, they swipe left. Or if they find out midway in the conversation, so this guy at least got the conversation going, and they find out in between, the guy says, Oh, by the way, I'm five foot six. This girl, or her tone just apparently turns cold. You see? So this friend was whining to me one day. He's just like, you won't believe it, man. Hide this and such. And then I'm looking at this guy, and he looks like a straight-up slob. He could grow a big beard, but his beard, it's not combed. It's all over the place. Um, he, Whenever we go out, he wears these sweatpants, the same sweatpants that he wears in his living room all the time. This guy's a cat, so there's cat hair on his sweatpants. Uh, his shirt—he's wearing one of these college football shirts. I'm like, bro, you don't—you don't look like an adult right now. Well, you kind of do because of your disgusting beard, but you don't look like an adult if you see what I'm saying. And this guy was just undermining fashion. I'm like, can you at least dress up a little bit? And he's like, nah, man, screw that. And he just wouldn't give it a chance. Luckily, now uh, I talked to him recently, and he seems very different. He's been playing around with his hair more. He's been getting a little bit more interested in fashion, and he's been telling me more about it. He's just like, Yeah, man, I've actually been following a couple of creators on social media who have been helping me think about fashion in a completely different way. It's more so a way to uh, control other people's perceptions. And once he's seeing it like that, rather than in this flamboyant way that a lot of guys initially think of it as, he's saying it as, it just makes me elevated in other people's perceptions. Nowadays, he's taking fashion more seriously. And for guys, here's the thing. From my experience, I've noticed that there's only two rules that need to be followed. Number one, you need to be in shape. And number two, you need to wear clothes that fit. Now, I would say, Most guys out there have one or the other. Uh, They have a great uh, shape to them, but they do not wear clothes that fit. And other times, they wear clothes that fit, but they are not in shape. You see? So this isn't good. If you have a little bit of both, I'm talking about that shape where you have those nice big shoulders, the traps, the V-tape, good quads, you could pretty much wear anything. And it will look like a designer outfit. So I'm not going to give any tips on girls with this. I, I believe with girls, you really got to understand the intricacies of fashion. So when they know the intricacies, I give them respect for that because they had to put in the work. But for guys, you have to put in the work in a completely different sort of way. You don't have to do that much studying. Now, granted, you should do that much studying. And I mean, here's a little cheat code. Most guys are still not going to put in that kind of work. I don't have time to put in that kind of work. I got shit to do. So every now and then, I spot one of the people from my crew. It doesn't have to be an immediate crew as well. It could be a second tier, third tier crew. I'm like, this guy always looks fresh. Even though he doesn't say much in events, he still sticks out. Hey, Alan, come here real quick, man. How'd you learn to dress like that? And he'll tell you. He's geeking out on stuff like this. He follows Pinterest boards. He follows uh, big influencers on fashion. He experiments himself. And you just pretend to be someone who's curious. Don't pretend. Actually be curious. And you're just like, wait. uh, Oh, wait a minute. So you shop from where? Oh, you buy um, the different colors of a shirt that you like. Huh, I never thought of it like that. You don't have that many items in your closet, but it always looks like you're wearing different things. You're over here getting all of this info from them. You're downloading it, and now it can be applied to you, okay? And other than that, it's just the gym. So it's gym and wearing clothes that fit. And just like that, perception increases tremendously, okay? And this is a great way to just Reduce speech anxiety. One of the productivity hacks that I have is that even if you are working from home, you should still dress up. And don't just dress up, put on a shirt, and that's it. Wear uh, a nice dress shirt, pants that are ironed, wear fresh socks, comb your hair, gel your hair, uh, put on shoes. Some people forget about the shoes, but you got to put on the shoes too. And here's the cheat code. Uh, get the cologne or perfume that you wear when you go outdoors, okay? You could have a cologne or perfume strictly for working from home. Whenever you spray it, you engage a different side of you. It's almost like an alter ego that puts you into the state of productivity. And it's not just for productivity. A lot of times, if you have an intense call that Let's say it means a lot. Let's say this is a call that you need to seal if you're going to get this potential client. Or let's say this is a uh, call that you need to seal if you're going to uh, get a potential marriage. Whatever the case is, your heartbeat is moving really fast. You're doing all the mantras, but right now it's not really working. You're feeling very nervous. You know what you should do? Get dressed up, put on the shoes, comb your hair, and spray what you need to spray scent activates a lot of memories to this day if you ever uh, seen one of those things called bod spray bod i still have a collection of those and i used to think i was the coolest kid in seventh grade when i would have the bod collection you could buy it from walgreens to this day if you spray bod near me i think of my childhood if you think about it, that's a magical power. So, we could use scent in a profound way to uh, unlock different parts of us. And if you could use scent strategically whenever you're trying to be product- productive or you're trying to do something where you're activating game mode, that can come in clutch. I know a lot of folks that are. Uh, Great to talk to in person once you get to know them. But whenever uh, this thing is involved, the phone, they become very weird, whether it be via text or whether it be via call. With text, the problem is that it's very difficult to turn your personality into words. Uh, Just like when you're speaking in front of the camera, what happens is that your personality, you as a human being, you are being converted to digital bits And when you're being converted, there's a lot of thing called a drop-off. A lot of energy is being lost. So sometimes you'll watch back your content on video, and you're going to be thinking, wait a minute, man. Why do I seem so boring and monotone? When I was actually giving the talk, I was doing it with so much life. What gives? What gives is because of the drop-off. So in front of the camera, you got to spice it up just a little bit more. Not too much, but I would like to say just 1.2 levels more, whatever 1.2 levels means to you. This gets you a little bit more engaging in front of the camera. Now with texting, the problem is even more difficult because you have less uh, sensory information. You literally just have words. And the thing is, you also have to factor in nerves, where some people, they're Over here, texting someone that they like a lot uh, and they don't want to make any mistakes. And one of the social ironies is that the more afraid you are to make mistakes, the more mistakes that you are going to make. And what this really means is that you're going to try to sound like someone that you're not. You're going to keep proofreading the text over and over before you hit send. You're like, no, 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 this doesn't sound as cool enough. And you try to make it sound cooler and then you send it and You're just met with nothing. The other person ghosted you, and you're thinking, what gives? It's not always your fault. I mean, at least you tried. There's another group of people who are very similar to the fashion with guys, where a lot of guys, they have a lot of things going for them, but they don't try with their fashion at all. And likewise, in the texting land, there's a lot of folks that have a lot of things going on for them, but they don't try at all with text. They don't initiate any questions, they just respond back. And when they respond back, a lot of them just use words. You can't um, understand how annoying this is, where when two people are trying to talk and one person is doing all the work and the other person is doing no work, the person who is doing all the work is eventually going to get annoyed and they are going to go ghost mode. This has happened to me a couple of times where I'm over here texting, other person is doing no work. Then I'm like, you know what? I got better stuff to do. So I stopped responding to them. And then a couple of days goes on by and they're like, hello, uh, where did you go? I'm like, where did I go? I've been here. Where have you been? Be a little bit more engaging. But they're not. And this is a mistake that doesn't just happen to women. It happens to men. It doesn't only happen to men. It happens to women. It is a human being problem. A lot of folks have no clue how to text properly. Texting properly really comes down to doing your best to write like you talk. This sounds very simple. It's like, write like I talk. Okay, well, I talk all the time. Writing shouldn't be that easy, right? Wrong. Uh, Because people spend their entire lives trying to write like they talk. Any great writer that you know out there, they've been working on their craft for years, just hoping that they can write like they talk. So don't think that you're just going to walk into it. It actually requires practice and engagement. And the thing is, you don't need to practice too much if you're already very confident. When you're very confident, um, and the confidence can be born from rapport or a lot of accomplishments just in general. But let's say you're talking to a, a good friend You're not uh, struggling too much to text. You're actually writing like you talk. But because of the pre-established rapport with this person, it's allowing for seamless communication. But with a lot of folks, you don't always have that uh, rapport with them. So that's when there's more tension. And that's the one where you need more practice. Uh, There's folks that have been out of the game for a long time let's say they've been working for a long time and now they just got fired, they're starting their business, now they're trying to uh, get a sales call. To get the sales call, they need to email or text a good amount. They're rusty. They gotta put in the work. Other times, it's a person that's been in uh, a relationship or a marriage for a long time, they break up and now they're into the dating apps uh, and they just don't know what to do. They sound very robotic and they're getting ghosted left and right. They're rusty. They got work to do. But I do want to uh, reiterate how important it is to learn how to uh, text. It's very important. And uh, I, I don't want to hammer home this principle too much because it's probably going to make certain people think oh, okay, well, let me keep proofreading my text more before I send it because Armani said it's very important. I mean, it's important in terms of just give a little bit of an effort you know a lot of folks just don't give that effort it's very similar to this guy just wearing sweats and having uncombed disgusting beard wherever he goes if he just would clean up a little that's all the effort that he needs to show and if you just ask a question every now and then that shows effort on your end you'll be surprised how easy it is to keep a conversation going as long as two parties are interested right um But every now and then, despite two parties being interested, one individual overthinks a lot. They're like, well, what am I going to ask this person, right? And this is when you don't have to think of a fresh new question a lot of the times. Um, You could just ask the question, you, back. So they asked you, uh, hey, what are some of your pet peeves? And you say, "Um, my pet peeves include... uh, slow walkers, uh, cold weather, traffic, right? And you just answer it and you leave it at that like a dummy. That's not smart. But if you answer that question and then you say you, now the dialogue still continues to go. And this you dynamic is so easy, but a lot of people drop the ball with this. Instead, what they think is, okay, so they just asked me the question of pet peeves. Okay, now I got to think of a uh, engaging question as well. And they're thinking and thinking too much. And when you're thinking a lot, it feels like work. And when it feels like work, you don't want to do it. So a lot of the folks will often accidentally ghost because they're thinking a lot. Talking to this person that they enjoy speaking to, they don't want to mess up and they accidentally ghost the person that they like because they are thinking too much. Avoid that. Just keep it simple like a you. okay? Now, since we're in texting, let me let me give another little uh, texting uh, insight. Um, another texting insight is that when someone tries to schedule plans with you and you're actually interested, uh, let's say this person reaches out to you and says, Hey, uh, Friday, 3 p.m., we should hang out. And let's say at Friday, 3 p.m., you're working, right? And, and you just say, Sorry, I'm working. And you just leave it at that. A lot of smart people just leave it at that and think, What's wrong with that? I, I am working at 3 p.m. But the socially savvy thing to do is to say, Hey, um, I'm working Friday at 3 p.m., but how about Sunday? You throw out that alternate day. If you don't throw out that alternate day and you don't have a a pre-existing rapport with that person who's extending the invite, they're going to think that you don't want to hang out. A lot of them are going to think that they're being a nuisance to you. And if they have some sort of social awareness, they're gonna be like, "Mm, okay, let me back off. So that's when you, you're like, what gives? I mean, I thought he wanted to hang out, or she wanted to hang out. How come they're not making uh, the plans anymore? You gotta throw in that alternative date. I get it. If you don't vibe with the person, and you're like, I don't want to hang out with you. I'm busy on Friday, pal. That's one thing. But if you actually want to hang out with that person, you gotta make it easy on them as well, because they have their own identity as well. You don't know what they're dealing with. Maybe they actually had to go out of their way to make plans Friday 3 p.m. And now they were hoping, oh, okay, um, you're busy. I get it. But if you don't say Sunday, does that work? Then they're going to take it as, okay, I made plans. I mean, but this person doesn't seem interested. It's not worth the hassle. Folks are busy nowadays. They don't want to be dealing with a hassle okay? I'm not saying you should make everything easy on the other person, but what I am saying is we have to realize times have changed, okay? It's not always a matter of um, applying old ideas in a new world. A lot of old ideas work. It works more elegantly than ever in a new world, but a lot of old ideas um, don't always work nowadays, especially when you're dealing with someone, and one of them is playing hard to get. Because here's what I learned. I actually had this one coworker uh, one time who gave me a very interesting insight about his life. He had been married to his wife for roughly 38 years. And he literally met her in the mall one day. He uh, ran past her and apparently um, bumped into her. He stopped. He said, uh, sorry. He started to talk to her. And eventually they ended up getting married that same day. That's all I recall. I don't know if it was a mall. It was some sort of intimate atmosphere where a conversation was allowed to take place. But all I remember is that they got married the same exact day. And one time he brought his wife into one of these work events and we're like, did you guys really get married in one day? She's like, yeah. I'm surprised he says one day because I say within a couple of hours. I'm thinking, what the hell? What a weird situation but it works for them. I mean, they don't argue that much. They have uh, two to three kids and they seem to be happy with one another. One day we were all uh, chilling and eating at um, uh, eating uh, in the cafeteria. And this gentleman, let's call him Dennis, the guy that got married in one day, he's basically talking to the other kids uh, in the lunch table. And there was this other guy uh, within the table, let's call him Juan. Juan was somewhat upset because him and his uh, girlfriend most likely were going to break up. Uh, They were most likely going to break up because his girlfriend wanted to live in one spot and Juan wanted to live in another spot. And Dennis, thinking uh, he's the voice of reason, he's like, women move wherever the man moves. And Juan, he really wanted this advice to be true uh, for him. But unfortunately, that idea didn't work in context to his life. And when Dennis saw that disconnect, he's like, Whoa, a lot of things have changed nowadays. Huh. And Juan nods his head. Yeah, Dennis, a lot has changed. You know what, Dennis? What was it like in your days? I mean, exclude yourself for a second because you getting married in one day is an outlier scenario. But what was it like for most of the folks out there? And Dennis began to explain. He was like, so here's how it would work with most of the folks. For most of the folks, what would happen was that within their geographic location, there were um, a community of people, and typically one girl would have three suitors, okay? And from those three suitors, it was a game of persistence. Whoever was the most persistent in trying to get this girl to be their wife would ultimately win. Okay, so back then, playing hard to get was a very smart thing to do because you're basically dealing with three folks, and playing hard to get serves as a filtration system. And if you trace it back even a little bit further, it's because you're only dealing with your geographic location. But nowadays, if you're playing too hard to get, then you can be seen as a weirdo. Uh, you could be seen as a creep real quick. So you gotta. Adjust that idea in modern times because a lot of folks, they're not bounded by their geographic location. How many individuals do you know that are doing business with people from different countries? They are starting relationships with people from different states. It's happening all the time now, okay? So times are different. Uh, So I thought that was actually a very funny thing because um, when I heard Dennis speak, I saw that he has been out of the game for some time. So he's one of those guys He's like, oh, thank God I'm not in the game right now because I don't know if I could adjust that well. Um, so this was a, a funny moment. A lot of funny moments emerge from talking with your crew during lunch. And something about lunch and late nights allow for more rapport. And this is something that I actually bring up in my book, Synergy, which is a book that teaches you more about negotiation skills. I understand that there are groups of people that find it very difficult to ask for favors. It hurts them. And one of the reasons it hurts them is because a couple of times they were done wrong. Maybe one time they had a favor done for them and uh, the person who did the favor uh, turned it into a power play. Let's say the other person gave you uh, rent money and you're thinking, thanks for the favor, you're going to pay them back with interest. But before you have the chance to pay him back, one day he gets in an argument with you and he calls you out. He's like, see, you would be nowhere if I didn't give you that rent money. That's one time that the favor um, hurt you, right? And another time it could be, uh, let's say you you just think you could do the task better. You hit up your friend who lives right by the airport in Seattle to give you a ride, uh, and you are going to talk to them and sightsee and such. It was really supposed to be a friendly bonding session rather than you just calling an Uber. And this friend is like, yeah, of course I'll pick you up. But the day that they're supposed to pick you up, uh, they oversleep. uh, They uh, are late. They keep missing the exit. The car is messy. And you're like, man, if I even asked for the favor, I could have just done it myself. So there are a group of people out there that find it very difficult to ask for favors. Here's one of the tricks that I bring up in Synergy. If you find it difficult, then still ask for the favor, but then treat them to lunch, you see? So let's say you are starting a business and you really need to learn Facebook ads. You have no clue how to do it. You have no clue what resources that are credible. So you hit up one of your buddies who's great with Facebook ads, and you're like, hey, buddy, uh, how about you, Teach me a little bit about Facebook ads. uh, You recommend some resources, and I will take you to Texas uh, de Brazil. From their perspective, they're going to be like, this guy's buying me lunch. Wow, uh, he's doing me a favor like this. Even though this Facebook guy is doing you a favor, the way that you framed it once lunch is involved makes him think that you're doing him a favor. That's the beauty with lunch. So if you could navigate this every now and then, and this is actually a great way to politely turn down events, uh, because one of the quotes that I really hate is, no, is a statement in itself. And people uh, write this on Twitter, they stack up their likes, their retweets, but it's not a, a pleasant way to do things. If people are hitting you up to events, that means you have a good problem. There's a lot of folks that uh, desire that they get hit hit up for anything, but they don't. You do. So rather than saying, no, that's a statement in itself, you know. Instead, you're just like, hey, my friend, thanks a lot for the invite. But unfortunately, I can't make it because, you know, I've been working overtime trying to get this business off the ground. How about this? Uh, When you are back, I will buy you lunch. This guy... uh, uh, he is going to absorb that uh, that invitation much better because now he's seeing it as an invitation rather than a rejection. You can't make it to his going away dinner, but you're inviting him to dinner. And now you get control back over your time, plus you gain control over the narrative as well. Uh, so I'm a way bigger fan of, doing your best not to uh, create enemies when you're saying no. Uh, It's very similar to uh, a fast food meal. Like If I come to you and I am holding a hamburger in my hand and I'm handing it to you because you tell me that you're starving, you haven't eaten in hours, and you could just hear your stomach growling, I'm holding that hamburger in front of you. Here you go. Are you going to eat it if I'm just holding it without a wrapper? No, you're going to be like, ew, man, what the hell? You eat that, right? (laughs) But if I get this hamburger and I put it in a nice wrapper and I put that nicely wrapped hamburger in a bag and then I come to you and I'm like, here you go. Uh, Here's uh, some food for you. You're going to be like, oh, thanks, man. You shouldn't have. This is us in regards to saying no. Uh, we don't just want to be holding our nasty hand in front of someone else. We want to put it in a wrapper and put that wrapper in a bag and then, uh, here you go, fam. Here's your no. You know, when they get a no, they're going to be like, f- for me? Really? You shouldn't have, man. Uh, th- that's how you should be saying a no, in my opinion. Now, mind you, this doesn't always work in practice because some people are very, 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 um, I would say demanding and they actually get taught to listen for no's. I've seen so many salesmen that um, whenever you're telling them a no, they are pre-planned for that. And what gets activated in their mind is, uh, no is a yes in the making. So for these folks, just politely saying no all the time can get very time consuming. And this is one of those reasons why I'm not completely against ghosting. I think, In a very fantasy-like world, you could say you should never ghost. And I think this is an idea that worked way better back in the days when landlines were king, right? That was the main way that you reached someone, okay? Uh, But you got to understand something. Back then, these folks that were mainly leveraging the landlines, they weren't getting calls from people from India, from Singapore, from Australia, from Canada, and such. Nowadays, in this generation, you're getting info coming from all these different fields. And if you're just saying a polite no to everyone, half your day is going to be wasted just saying no. Okay, so every now and then, if a person does not pick up the hint, I have no problem with ghosting. And these folks know that you're ghosting them, by the way, okay? Uh, not all of them. Some people are just like, oh, maybe they didn't see it. But there's this one guy that just routinely just pops up out of the ether always to sell me. And nowadays, uh, I just ghost him. You know, it's like, fam, I I told you how many times that I don't want the service. Uh, And he's always trying to sell me. I'm pretty sure from his perspective, he's somewhat upset. Uh, And from his perspective, he thinks I'm an unreliable guy. And I would say he's right from his perspective. Okay, so you always got to remember something. The time is very limited. We cannot be reliable to everyone. And there's going to be a certain period where we're going to be considered unreliable to a large volume of people. And this is an unfortunate situation of being because that's when we start to second guess our strategy. We're like, dang, man, all these people are so upset with me. What gives? And this is when we just have to remember. uh, This is a new time that we're living in. There are people from Singapore, Australia, Africa, India hitting us up. And we just can't be there for everyone, you know? And I'm pretty sure a lot of folks realize this once they get their first, I would say, 5,000 followers. Not even that. uh, It could even just be 2,500. If they're starting to gain some steam, their DMs are beginning to flood And trying to respond back to every DM isn't noble, but it really depends on how it plugs into the rest of your life. I mean, eventually things just get more complex in nature and certain times there are trade-offs which are being introduced. So we talked about a lot of different concepts today. We've talked about uh, fashion, we've talked about texting, we've talked about ghosting as well. And I think one of the final uh, things that I want to leave it at, is uh, 1% improvements. Uh, 1% improvements are something that are very underrated. And I think this is a great way in order to ease yourself into uh, different uh, fields. Uh, Whenever we're trying to learn something, one great way to learn it is to actually create a phrase for it. So I like to call it the 1% mindset. Boom, it just becomes clear to me. But there's another thing called the marginal gains theory. And this is when you're consistently stacking up a tiny little wins. And the tiny little wins don't seem like much, but it over time becomes something gargantuan. And one real life moment that this happened to me, was one time I decided uh, I was going to get my newsletters, which are very tiny. I would say it's roughly 600 to 700-ish words uh, per day in entry, which, by the way, you you should sign up for. ArmaniTalks.com slash newsletter. Sign up today. And within this newsletter... um, It's tiny for a reason. Uh, Number one, this allows me to be consistent. And number two, uh, people are able to give me a tiny sliver of their day to just learn more about communication skills. Well, one day I decided to get these tiny little newsletters and compile it into one document. I'm thinking that this is going to be a pretty short document, right? But the guy that was over here collecting uh, and putting it all into one document He's like, fam, my computer keeps crashing. I was like, why is a computer crashing for, man? It's a tiny little document, right? He's like, there's nothing tiny about this. And eventually when I got the first draft, okay, those tiny little newsletters on Word document formed 100,000 pages. Just imagine if someone came up to me and said, hey, Armani, write 100,000 pages. I'm going to be like, bro, you okay? I can't write that much. But here I am just day by day writing these 600 to 700 word newsletters. And it just out of nowhere transformed into something gargantuan. I was getting my 1% wins. And then boom, uh, the win was astronomical. And mind you, that was just in the beginning of my journey. Since then, I've written uh, many other newsletters, which meant many other 100,000 manuscripts. That's actually what formed these, this series right here, the 101 short stories uh, series uh, to improve communication skills. So never underestimate what it's like to use small wins to your advantage. Whenever something is very big and scary, uh, just think, okay, well, what are certain wins that I could get in regards to this? Let's say you want to be this amazing writer. Rather than trying to write a book from the very get-go, try writing a tweet. You could do that. Uh, let's say you want to have your own show. Uh, let's say you want your own radio show, and you don't necessarily know how to do that. Uh, sure, you could go on to college and get a mass communications major, but for the time being, why not just start a podcast, uh, get a mic, download Audacity, and just begin recording tiny little episodes, um, just four to five minute episodes, uh, structuring y- your thoughts into a talk. This is another chance where you're getting these little 1% wins. And the more that you keep stacking up these 1% wins over time, when you're looking back, you're like, whoa, I was not able to predict this at all. Exactly. So this is why I like the marginal uh, gains uh, theory a lot. I love the 1% mindset because it always allows you to wake up in the morning and ask the question, what am I going to improve today? And it doesn't have to be something uh, very big. It's like, today I need to climb uh, Mount Everest. It could be something very small. Today, I am going to call someone that I haven't talked to in a while. Today, I am going to go to the gym. Okay, I'm going to uh, lift today. I'm going to do yoga. I've been hearing about this yoga thing for some time, and let me give it a little try. Let me go on YouTube. Actually, better yet, rather than even me trying yoga today, how about let me go on YouTube today and at least find a workout plan of yoga that I could see myself implementing. That's what I'm going to do today. Tomorrow, I will execute, but today, I'm just going to find that YouTube video that I believe is right for me. So when you're doing these little 1% wins, what happens is that you start to build a better grasp of what it's like to do self-improvement in a manageable, fun sort of way. A lot of folks, when they first start self-improvement, they're very annoying. They're very um, just judgy. They're lecturing other people about dropping all these different bad habits, constantly posting inspirational quotes on social media. And soon what happens is that a lot of these folks begin to disappear uh, because one half of them, they're, they're like, okay, the self-improvement thing is a lot of work. Let me go back to my previous lifestyle. And the remaining folks who remain in self-improvement, they learn something. The goal of self-improvement was not pride. It was awareness. So ease yourself into awareness with tiny little 1% wins at a time. I thank you very much for joining me today and I will catch you next time.